Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 85, Questioning Assumptions. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we do try and promote the scientific method and scientific thinking. And a key part of that is not to assume anything without evidence. So, for example, anyone who listens to astronomy podcasts knows that the universe expanded from a singularity 13.8 billion years ago, right? Well, not so fast. Dear Cheap Astronomy, did the universe really start from a single point? The observable expansion and cooling of the universe over time does lend itself to the idea that if you wind the clock back far enough, then everything must have started from a single point. And that point is sometimes described as possessing infinite density within a zero-volume singularity. As we often say here at Cheap Astronomy, any explanation that relies on an appeal to infinity is probably bollocks. There's never a point at which you can say you've reached infinity. It's a concept of endlessness. It's not a state that can be reached. More to the point, small astronomy joke there, the quantum concept of Planck scales, which includes scales of volume and temperature, require that there are fundamental limits to indivisibility, and they're limits that can't be breached. So the fact there is a universe that works the way it does, means there can't have possibly been a past universe that was packed up tight within a zero volume. There are observable features of the universe that tell us about its past. As we said earlier, since it is expanding, it was clearly smaller in the past. And with respect to energy per average unit volume, it's cooling. So it was obviously hotter per average unit volume in the past. And while mass and energy are equivalent and interchangeable, the total mass energy content of the universe doesn't change. So the universe must also have been denser in the past. Of course, we have to pause here to deal with the concept of dark energy, which allegedly increases as the volume of the universe increases, since it is allegedly, an energy that appears out of nowhere to drive the accelerating expansion of the universe. Here at Cheap Astronomy, we acknowledge that the universe is undergoing accelerating expansion, but we are pretty confident that has nothing to do with energy, at least with respect to how humanity describes and measures energy in any other context. Sometimes it's okay to acknowledge you have no clue why something is happening, even though it is obviously happening. Anyhow, parking dark energy to one side, the universe of the past was clearly smaller and denser, and per average unit volume, it was hotter. But extrapolating that understanding to its extreme, by saying the universe was once all packed up within a zero-volume singularity, is probably a step too far. But really, the best thing to say is we just don't know. And that's not to say we'll never know, we just don't know yet. 
Probably the most baffling aspect of the early universe is that it must have had the energy mass content of the current universe, but concentrated within a very small volume. So why didn't it just collapse into a black hole there and then? Clearly it didn't, because here we are. Our best guess is that it has something to do with entropy. Though don't push us too hard on that point, because we have no clue really. It does seem as though when the universe was young and hot and uniform, and its energy mass equivalence was mostly in energy rather than matter, then it naturally inflated. But now, when everything is spread out across a much larger volume, and pockets of energy mass density have cooled down into conventional matter, that matter can collapse down under its own self-gravity into the irretrievable state of a black hole. So how big was the universe in its first instant? Almost certainly, it was bigger than one Planck unit of volume, and hence not a single point. But how much bigger, we can't really say. Current physics doesn't give us much insight into the state of the universe prior to there being quarks, which is known as the quark epoch, a split second in which the universe was probably already as big as the solar system, since early rapid inflation was already occurring. How big was it before that inflation? No idea. And how and why it inflated? No idea. Nonetheless, we are pretty sure it was never a single point. Well, sort of sure. This is the middle bit. Of course, the universe might have started from a single point, but it doesn't seem likely insofar as quantum physics doesn't allow anything to be smaller than a Planck unit. Of course, we don't know if the universe's origin followed any of the laws of physics that subsequently operated in the universe, but then we don't know that it didn't either. That is the theme of this episode. You can't just assume things. And that can include things quite close to home. Dear Cheap Astronomy, how unusual is the Earth? It's probably best to start by asking how unusual the solar system is. The many stellar systems out there with orbiting exoplanets are mostly nothing like the solar system. Many have gas giants in the range of Mercury's orbit, and the ones that have Earth-like planets are mostly red dwarf systems. But this is probably just selection bias. Exoplanets are right at the limits of our current detection systems. So the exoplanets we find around large stars are usually close in gas giants, and the terrestrial planets we find are usually around small stars. Detection via the transit method mostly finds planets that are proportionally large compared to their star, and detection via the wobble method mostly finds planets that are either proportionally large and massive, or otherwise are very close to their star. So, while the exoplanets we've found so far have a preponderance of close-in gas giants and terrestrial planets around red dwarfs, that's just because these are easy planets to find. While we're yet to prove it, Earth may well be a common and unremarkable planet orbiting a common and unremarkable star. The chemical makeup of the solar system is composed of elements that are ubiquitous 
and found in similar proportions across the universe. Hydrogen and helium, arising from post-Big Bang nucleosynthesis, are still the dominant elements, but 13.8 billion years after the Big Bang, lots of other elements are now in abundance. Notably carbon and oxygen, which are the next major products of stellar nucleosynthesis after helium. So there's nothing remotely unusual about a planet and a stellar system that contain lots of hydrogen, helium, oxygen, water and carbon-based molecules, including CO2. Indeed, it would be unusual if this were not the case. Of course, in any stellar system, including ours, most of the hydrogen and helium is found in the overwhelming mass of the central star. Once nuclear fusion kicks off and that star generates outward radiation pressure, any nearby volatiles, like hydrogen and water, are pushed out past the frost line, where the water forms ice rocks alongside carbon dioxide ice rocks, which all aggregate and self-gravitate and so capture the surrounding hydrogen, thus forming gas giants. Within the frost line, the remaining volatile depleted materials aggregate to form smaller and rocky planets. The self-gravity of these rocky planets drives differentiation of their material composition, so they end up with an iron-nickel core surrounded by a molten mantle and a cool crust composed of mostly oxygenated silicon and carbonaceous minerals. So perhaps the only thing that is unusual about Earth is that it teems with life. Earth receives a lot of life-supporting energy in the form of stellar radiation, but that doesn't seem to have helped Venus and Mars. Perhaps we'll find floating microbes in Venus's cloud tops and fossils of past life on Mars, but clearly neither planet is teeming with life the way that Earth does. What sets Earth apart from planets like Mars and Venus is its substantial magnetic field. Without a magnetic field the solar wind would have stripped Earth of most of its volatiles, notably its nitrogen atmosphere and all its water, leaving behind the heavier CO2, which is the primary component of Venus and Mars' atmospheres. Earth's magnetic field arises from it having a somewhat molten iron-nickel core and also a fast spin. The smaller Mars spins about as fast as Earth, but its core is cooled and gone solid, And while Venus still has a molten core, it has a very slow spin. So, in conclusion, there is nothing particularly unusual about the Earth, although it does have a particular set of conditions that allows it to teem with life. The early collision between the proto-Earth Mark I and the proto-planet Thea may have been key to all this. Where Thea added more iron and nickel to Earth Mark II's core, And it also gave us an unusually large moon, remembering that Venus and Mercury have no moons at all, and Mars just has a couple of big rocks. So while Earth might be entirely ordinary as a planet, it does have an unusual moon, which may have contributed to Earth's habitability by helping to stabilise Earth's spin. And of course, our unusual moon also gives us a stepping stone into the cosmos. This is the end bit. So, there you go. When you think about it, it's quite possible the Earth is an entirely bog-standard planet, 
at least for a planet around a Generation 1 G-type star. And it's hardly unusual it got struck by another protoplanet early in its formation. We're pretty sure Venus did too, not to mention Uranus. So the Earth and its inhabitants are pretty ordinary. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just assume you might have, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll presume what you assume and just resume where we left off. Thanks for listening. Steve Nalick, Cheap Astronomy.